Attention all entrepreneurs in the ag, western, and rural space that are struggling to work on your business because you're too deep in your business. We just announced the dates for our second in-person mastermind, January 30th through February 1st, and want to invite you to attend. Elevate the Summit is a two-month-long small group mastermind and coaching community comprised of an in-person retreat plus virtual coaching calls. We hosted our first summit this summer, and here's what attendees had to say. It was just what I needed. I was in a place where I didn't know the steps to move forward with my business. I came out of the summit with an action plan and a group of women to have for a sounding board afterwards. I'm so thankful there will be follow-up calls for check-ins and accountability. I really feel confident in my plan. And now at a week after the summit, I have been able to follow through with what I said I would follow through with. And my plan is currently on track. I am so excited for the future of my business and thankful for Natalie and Tara's guidance along the way. Overall, I'm very satisfied with the summit. I enjoyed that it was actually focused on taking an action plan in the right direction. It was a good balance of discovering what direction I needed to go, determining the steps to get there, and having a community to hold me accountable. And here's another one. This experience not only changed my business, but changed my life. I've never invested in myself or my business like this, and this event was a thousand percent worth it. If you are a business owner or have a brand online and are looking to spend time digging deep into your brand or business and strategizing the steps you need to elevate it and yourself to the next level, the mastermind is for you. You can find out more at our website, elevateyouragstory.com, and the application to apply is linked in our show notes. We really hope to see you guys there. Welcome to Elevate the Podcast, a storytelling and business podcast where we interview and mastermind entrepreneurs in the agricultural, western, and rural space. On Elevate, we deep dive entrepreneur stories and share the problems they encountered and opportunities they created as a way to educate, inspire, and encourage the dreamer inside us all. We mastermind business ideas and deep dive topics to deliver tangible advice, useful tools, and bold strategies that we as entrepreneurs can implement to drive our own businesses forward. Created by Agriculture for Agriculture, Elevate opens the doors for rural, western, and agricultural entrepreneurs so they can elevate themselves, their businesses, and the lifestyles we all love. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Elevate Ag, the podcast. Um, It's Tuesday, and we have one of our advocacy episodes. And I am really excited for our guest today. I know you guys are going to be just as excited. You probably already saw her name in our title. Um, But before we dive in, I do want to point out that my beautiful co-host Tara will not be joining us today. We're recording this a little bit ahead of time because um, our guest is a busy lady. And so Tara's actually filming our docuseries, which you guys kind of know about. So she was unable to join. So it'll just be me and Diana today. Um, So Diana, if you kind of want to kick this off, and I'm sure a large portion of our community is very familiar with you, um, but go ahead and introduce for those that are unaware. Sure. Um, I can tell you a little bit about like current stuff. And then if you have any questions about like, you know, how I got into it and everything, it was kind of a windy road. Um, but I, Diana Rogers and I'm a registered dietitian. I am the co-author of the book Sacred Cow and the director producer of the film Sacred Cow. And uh, I am uh, the owner of Sustainable Dish, which is a uh, a blog. I do nutrition um, consultations. I have a course called Sustainivore. And uh, I do a lot on social media advocating for real food, real farming, and in particular, animal sourced foods, milk, 
dairy, eggs, things like that. Um, and I recently started a nonprofit called the Global Food Justice Alliance uh, to really push back against this anti-livestock narrative that's happening globally. So I've been traveling around a lot this year and um, doing a lot of work on the global, um, just kind of anti-meat overall um, movement. So, and that's even factory farmed meat too. I mean, um, it, it's not a hundred percent bad. I, I do advocate for, you know, regenerative agriculture, but um, you know, as far as feeding a lot of people and getting protein into them as a dietitian and mother and health advocate, um, you know, we have to think about people's health first. And um, so there's uh, a lot of nuance to the conversation and I'm sure you'll have a lot of questions. So bring them on. I do. So yes, before we jump into things like the global food justice and kind of the global anti-meat narrative and all those wonderful things you share about, I did. It's funny you mentioned if I wanted to deep dive a little bit more into your story, because I do. I think it's interesting. and I think our community would love to hear, you know, there's a lot of registered dietitians out there that kind of have the same, I guess, belief as you, you know, they're advocating for meat in the diet. They recognize a well-balanced diet, but none of them are taking it to the length you have to advocate for you know, the cow and regenerative agriculture. And so I am curious about what kind of set you on this path to go as far as, you know, the blog, the podcast, the book, the the movie. Um, so maybe fill us in on like some of those missing pieces. Yeah. Um, so I didn't start my career as a dietitian. I, uh, I, I worked in, um, food marketing for many years and also just, uh, um, information marketing. I worked for national public radio for a while. I worked for whole foods market for a while, worked for a natural tea company for a little bit. Um, and, um, but meanwhile, I, had celiac disease that wasn't discovered until I was in my mid twenties. And so I was sort of dealing with some health issues. And, um, when I first went gluten-free after I was diagnosed, the dietitian just kind of gave me a bunch of coupons for ultra processed gluten-free alternatives to kind of the standard American diet that I was eating. And although my guts did improve, I still had some health stuff going on. I didn't know why I had to eat every you know, 45 minutes, I, uh, I just felt terrible all the time. And it really wasn't until I started really doing a deep dive into real food nutrition. I, I first went to a Weston A. Price conference. I became a NTP, a nutritional therapy practitioner, and then decided to uh, take it to the next level and become a registered dietitian, which um, ended up taking me about seven years to do because I uh, was balancing uh, being a young mom and working uh, the whole time, but it was totally worth it. I'm really glad that I became a dietitian. So I really approached nutrition from a very different space than you know someone who might be doing it just as an undergrad. Um, and uh, at the same time, I was married to a farmer and living on farms. And we started as a vegetable farm, started incorporating more animals just for fertility. And, you know, it makes a lot of sense to feed a chicken a gigantic zucchini instead of just throwing it in the compost pile and waiting for it to, you know, turn into compost. You can just like elevate, you know, at, at the, the nutrients, the upcycle those nutrients into um, more important foods really, uh, by feeding that zucchini to a chicken, um, and using the chicken's manure as the, uh, fertilizer. And so we, we started with chickens and then got into, uh, pasture-raised pigs and sheep, um, because of where we were 
it didn't make sense for us to have cattle just you know eastern massachusetts like pretty close to boston we didn't have the land or the fencing to really support like a cattle herd um but uh this you know i was watching the debate happen um and you know more and more people saying well for the planet we need to be more vegetarian and so I already had this sort of nutrition background, knowing that animal source foods are really critical for human health, um, but also for, you know, sustainable agriculture. If you want to have a really closed loop system, you have to have animals as part of that mix. And nobody was really telling that that story. There were, you know, I, I work with the Savory Institute. I work with a lot of um, Regenag organizations that really advocate for Regenag. But there's not a lot of people that cross over um, from the nutrition space as well. And so I really saw this as an opportunity to introduce nutrition to the conversation of regenerative agriculture and really push back against this global narrative right now that is getting stronger and stronger that um, in order to feed future people, we must eliminate animal agriculture and we all need to be eating these fake meats. Uh, it's interesting. We interviewed, I don't know if you're familiar with Food Science Babe. We interviewed her back in episode 27, but she actually mm -hmm. got her start kind of the same way as you, which is um, in, you know, food marketing. So it's interesting that like having that background and that, I guess, um, exposure to some of the things that are going on in the food industry can really uh, catalyze, um, you know, obviously did for both of you guys into getting more involved. Um, so you mentioned the global meat narrative in there. Um, and maybe we could just dive right into that. Cause I think you do an amazing, amazing job on discussions around, you know, what we're facing as an ag industry right now. Um, and kind of, I mean, you draw a lot of attention to the elitism that it is, um, and especially how it can be harmful for younger children and adults. So do you kind of want to maybe talk a little bit about, you know, your stance and your belief on that and what you share over on Sustainable Dish around that, you know, as well as the global food justice? Yeah. Um, so uh, just this year, I um, I was in Brazil. I was in the UK twice. I went to Australia and New Zealand. Um, and I'll be back uh, in Ireland in October for the International Meat Summit, actually, mm. um, where we're going to be uh, taking all the leading scientists around meat and really uh, kind of setting the record straight, nutrition, environment, ethics, and economics. And so, um, you know, there's a lot of different directions that this gigantic, messy snowball of anti-meat is coming from. So we've got nutrition. Um, meat is, you know, accused of causing heart disease and cancer. Um, there's some really wacky stuff happening right now globally with that, too. The, there's the Global Burden of Disease Study, mm -hmm. which um, is being highly scrutinized at the moment because it has set the tolerable risk exposure level of meat to zero, meaning any amount of meat at all will increase your risk of dying. And that's absolutely ridiculous. The researchers didn't show any evidence to support their position and they're getting called out on it. And so uh, people are really starting to take a second look at like, where did this information come from? Is it valid research or is it just kind of like observational research where, and, and that's really what it is. This, this research against meat is, um, you know, looking at different populations like vegetarians versus people who eat meat and saying, oh, well, vegetarians are generally healthier people. So it must be the meat instead of really um, adjusting for all those other lifestyle factors that vegetarians typically have, right? They 
they do yoga, they, they eat more fresh fruits and vegetables than a typical meat eater. There, there's all kinds of other things. And when you adjust for all of those confounding factors, those lifestyle factors, there's no evidence at all that meat actually increases your risk of disease or mortality. So um, it's a pretty easy argument to win when you when someone understands the science. But unfortunately, the media um, you know, looks at a, a study that says there's a link between meat and cancer and says meat causes cancer. Mm-hmm. But that's not really true. That's like me saying, well, there's a link between ice cream consumption and shark attacks. And so eating ice cream causes shark attacks, right? The, the two things happen when the weather gets warm, but that doesn't mean that uh, one causes the other thing, right? Um, so it's the same kind of logic. And then, of course, environmentally, we've got um, meat being accused of taking up too much land, too many resources, too much water. And of course, the big one that it is um, causing climate change because of methane emissions, which really, when you look at the science of that, it's quite complicated science. And um, the, the story's not really in favor of the anti-livestock people. Um, And then we've got the ethical argument as well. And what it comes down to is that people are uncomfortable about eating meat. They don't like the idea that animals are being raised to feed people. And so if there's available science that they don't fully understand, but they can latch onto it, it makes it seem more credible for them to be anti-meat. So they, they blame it on climate change, but it's, it's not really good solid science. That is one of the unfortunate things I feel like we're really up against um, as an industry. And then also we as like, you know, individuals sharing online and kind of combating some of these discussions and narratives. Um, You know, I do a lot of advocacy and information and awareness around the environment portion, but I do kind of because I don't have that background that you carry, I kind of stay away from the diet portion. Um, But I follow pretty closely what you do. And I feel like the same thing you kind of mentioned with like the Eat Lancet and the Global Burden of Disease Report. Um, is the same thing that happened to us. I'm blanking. I tried to pull it up when you were talking. Um, I'm blanking on the original study that kind of um, set the narrative for cattle and climate. Livestock's long shadow. Yes, thank you. Um, And it's like these pieces are put out by the media and then perhaps maybe they're recalled, but it's like once you ring the bell, it's really hard to undo. And I feel like that's one of the biggest things we're up against. It's extremely frustrating. Yeah, totally. Um, Yeah. So it's the same kind of thing with, you know, meat causes cancer, you know, once, once people kind of have that story, um, it's really hard to go back and people, you know, why is it cattle? Why isn't it Mm -hmm. chicken or pork? Right. You know, and it's because cows look more like dogs. They have big, beautiful eyes. Um, People are, um, not familiar with how livestock are raised. Their only exposure to animals is really as pets, as members of the family. Uh, we have children's books that feature pets as people or as, mm-hmm. as friends. Um, meat is, red meat is, is red. It's bloody looking. It reminds us of death and people are really afraid of death. And so there's a lot going on psychologically that helps the case to vilify meat that, is really um, a bias that a lot of people don't know that they have. Mm-hmm. And like you said, it's um, easier to understand once you kind of put all the pieces together and like see the big picture and understand the science. But 
unfortunately, I feel like that's not as easy as we'd like it to be for everyone. Um, You touched on the ethics, the economics, and the environment. Um, I think a lot of our community is, um, you know, producers, farmers, and ranchers. And so they are really interested in that environmental portion. So Mm -hmm. maybe we can dive in a little bit talking about like maybe the natural biogenic cycle, maybe a little bit some of that arable versus non-arable, just a lot of that conversation around, um, you know, cattle and the climate that they can maybe bring back to their, you know, their own advocacy efforts on their social platforms. Yeah. And, um, and I can mention that on the globalfoodjustice.org, uh, I have shareable graphics, um, that help illustrate these things. And I feel like there, it really does help to, for people to see. Um, and the biggest door opener you have with anybody is the arable versus non-arable land. And just explaining to people that 60% or more of our agricultural land globally is not suitable for growing crops. And so if we remove those cattle, there's nothing to replace them as far as food production. And we have a growing population of not only malnourished people that need those nutrients, but also here in America, uh, 70% of Americans are overweight or obese, yet we, a lot of them are also malnourished at the same time. And so we are going to need to produce nutrition for people. We don't have a problem with food production. We have, mm-hmm. we've definitely produced enough calories, but calories is what's ruining us for our health. We need nutrition and the best source of nutrition are animal source foods. The, the protein and the B12, the iron, all the other micronutrients are superior in animal source foods compared to plant source foods. And uh, so I do have a graphic that, that shows the, um, the percentage of land, but that, that's what won me my book contract with actually a vegan publisher. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah, it really, uh, opened his eyes and, um, and then you have an opportunity once they realize, oh, I wasn't looking at this It's not apples to apples. I wasn't looking at this properly. Then you have an opportunity to talk to them about water cycles and methane cycles and things like that. Um, I'm glad you brought up where people can find sources. That's a big thing that Tara and I get. Um, And I actually remember I found you like way back when I first started Instagram. I think you were one of the very original accounts. And I, a lot of your resources then were under Sustainable Dish. And you had an amazing download that helped me so much in my advocacy efforts. So for everyone who's listening, um, Diana does have really, if you're not following her Instagram page, um, Sustainable Dish or her other one, The Global Food Justice, I would recommend pausing our podcast right now and hopping on there and following those because you're going to find a lot of great conversations that, you know, you'll be able to bring to your community as well as, like she said, graphics and data and percentages that you can bring into um, conversation. So one thing I did want to talk about, it's on your global (laughs) food justice page. You just talked about George. um, How do you say his last name? Yes. And I do feel like you had mentioned that in the arable versus non-arable conversation, I do feel like that is one thing that, you know, opposing accounts love to point out is how much land we're using, but none of them then bring into the conversation because that's the only thing it's good for. And I feel like it's so deceptive when they point out how much, you know, land cattle take up, but don't point out, you know, the reason why it's kind of the same thing with like rainwater, you know, green versus blue. Um, and I think mm-hmm. a lot of the, dis- do you kind of maybe want to touch on like a little bit of the dis- deceit that's kind of going on? I don't know if deceit is the right word, but mm-hmm. just a little of like skewing and twisting of those facts. Yeah. Um, and it, I feel like the land use piece is a little bit easier to win in the U S than it is in some other countries, um, like the UK, because, 
um, in the UK, you drive around and they just don't have the wild spaces that we have. Um, we, you know, rangeland, people can imagine in their head the West and dryness and kind of brownness that comes with the West, right? They've, many people have flown over the country. They look down, they, they see the circles and the squares for the Midwest, but then you don't see those when you fly over much of the Western part of the country. And so people are, can a little bit more easily visualize, oh, you're right. Like we have water issues here. Um, you can't just like irrigate and, and, and plow up everything. In the UK, it's a lot more uh, wet and uh, the sheep have really decimated a lot of, of England and Scotland. And uh, there's not a lot of wild spaces left. There's, there's not a lot of trees left. Um, when you drive around the highlands, it's hard to see like what's a peat bog and what's um, just deforested. And so George Mambiant's position is with all that land that cattle are currently on, it should all be forest. And we should just plant trees there. We should let nature take over and rewild. Um, and interestingly, he is the guy that narrated the um, story about Yellowstone and the wolves coming back. I think it's called like Wolves Change Rivers or something like that. And um, it, for any of your listeners that are unfamiliar with it, it's pretty cool. It's not that long, uh, maybe like five or six minutes long. And it's a video about how once they introduced the predators, the wolves back into Yellowstone, the deer were no longer overgrazing certain areas because they were constantly on the move from the predator pressure. And that actually increased ecosystem function of Yellowstone. And so this is George Mambiant's uh, logic for rewilding England. But the problem is the English countryside has humans living there and no more predators, right? And so if you're going to have all these beautiful deer running around, who's going to manage them? Who's going to get paid to manage them? And who's going to eat them when they need to be culled? That's the other thing. Do just the wolves get the nutritious food and like humans just have to eat this biological goo that he's talking about? I mean, I saw him present at Groundswell, which is the biggest uh, Regen Ag conference in England this summer. And right in front of all these farmers in England, he basically insulted all of them and told them that they were worthless and that they um, should all stop their, their jobs. Uh, livestock farming is the worst thing for the environment ever. And, um, you know, the government should somehow be paying them, I don't know, with whose money um, to just uh, have wild spaces. Sounds like a lovely and chat. And <laughs> it's just, it's a complete fallacy. It's not practical. And the funny thing is, is he criticizes Alan Savory for not having like data to back up a lot of the um, regen success stories that they've seen. But yet he has absolutely no data. George Mabiant has no data at all to show that this, um, this biological goo stuff that he thinks all humans need to be eating, which is somehow magically made out of hydrogen and no other things, just like hydrogen and air, and we can make protein goo for humans. How is that not going to be centralized, dominated by um, corporations? Like, how is that a, a win for food equity, rural communities? You know, it, it's it's like he doesn't care about any of the people that live in these areas that have lived there forever that are doing a really great job. And so 
I couldn't believe, I was really shaking when I was mm-hmm. watching him talk and uh, a lot of the other farmers were too. Yeah, that um, I can imagine the energy, the tenseness in the air was probably palpable <laughs> palpable yeah. by many. Um, you kind of alluded to this utopian perspective, I guess, or maybe like this lens that I feel like a lot of them are, you know, viewing, removing animal agriculture from, you know, society and how, I just feel like they don't understand, um, or maybe they do, but I just don't feel like they've thought through the implications of what that would actually look like if we could. I mean, it's not even feasible to remove animal agriculture from, you know, society. Yeah, and nutritionally, he has no profile on you know this this actually. So I mean, there's protein, and then there's amino acids, right? And so animal source foods contain all the proper amino acids that humans need. Plant source foods do not. They just, they can't do it. Um, and you have to eat a lot more calories worth of plant source foods in order to get the same protein, crude protein level. Um, we don't need people eating extra calories in order to meet mm-hmm. their protein goals. That's, that's like the last thing we need. Um, extra carbs, we don't need that. Actually, there was a study that was done in the US on what what would it look like if we removed all livestock from our food system and it found that our emissions would only go down 2.6%, but yet our calorie consumption would go up, our carbohydrate consumption would go Mm -hmm. up, and our nutrient deficiencies would go up. So we would be more nutrient uh, deficient in in B12, calcium, vitamin A, and essential fatty acids. And so it's it's not a win at all. Yeah. I love how you share, you know, you've done it through this conversation, but you do it on your platforms too, really well, this whole concept of like, we don't need more calories or pounds of food. Um, especially with like how big a food waste is an issue, which I don't feel like is even talked enough in any of these conversations is like the food waste aspect. Um, but we don't need extra food. What we need is a more nutrient dense food. And I know you said that a couple of times, but I just really wanted to, you know, hound that home for people who are listening. Yeah. And one thing I recently learned was that for every pound of um, plant source proteins, there's four pounds of food waste that mm-hmm. comes out of that. So like the pea protein industry, all the other parts of that plant are unusable other than the protein, right? Um, And so we could give, we could add that to the ration of feedlot finished cattle and um, upcycle that into protein, or we could just let it sit in a pile and emit greenhouse gases and not turn it into food. So what's the choice there? And that's where I, I really challenge people that are like only grass fed for everything or less meat, better meat. I'm like, "Mm, it's actually quite sustainable to feed all this food waste from the plant industry and the ethanol industry to cattle and uh, upcycle that into nutrient dense food. Yeah. I love bringing, um, I feel like it's maybe people are aware of it or not, but I do love highlighting. I think people are aware by now the conversation going around that, you know, cattle upcycle and they're, you know, they're consuming, um, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, Unusable foods. Yes. You know, fill in the blank um, from different sources. But I don't think they realize how vast it goes, you know, from like almonds to oranges. I mean, I feel like every almost agriculture, I was just reading like cotton holes, like the seeds are some part, some part of the cotton process is reused and, you know, given back to cattle. And I don't feel like they realize how almost every, which again, going back to like, if we're talking about like what's better for the planet and global footprints, it's like, what are we going to do with all the things that cattle are consuming then? Like that can't be good for the planet either. Yeah. And so, and then their pushback was, oh, but you know, it takes 12 pounds of grain. It, it So it does not take 12 pounds of grain to produce one pound of meat. It, 
it actually only takes two and a half pounds of corn um, to produce one pound of meat when you look at the whole life cycle of that cow. So most mm-hmm. people think that feedlot finished cows spend their whole life on feed on feedlots and they don't. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not sure, you know, where your listeners stand on this, if, if uh, you know, how they feel about all this, but um, our whole beef population right now, um, 85% of them are grazing on land that cannot be cropped. Mm-hmm. And, um, and when they do end up on a feedlot, it's only three months out of their lives. They're not like in, I mean, pork and poultry is way, way worse as far as ethics and food consumption. They're eating hundred percent grain. Um, cattle, um, have the same feed conversion rate as chickens. So two and a half. And, um, and meanwhile, they're taking all this other bulk fiber and turning that into meat too. And so, you know, with one animal, can produce almost 500 pounds of meat. Um, and it's more nutritious than chicken. So, uh, my, my, uh, vote for people who are food insecure or, you know, really just trying to stretch their grocery dollar. If they're in the grocery store and they're only presented with, you know, chicken, pork, or beef, get the beef. It's Mm -hmm. better nutritionally, it's better environmentally, and it's better ethically. For everyone who is just listening to this podcast and doesn't have the privilege of seeing Diana like I do, it's amazing that you are just rattling off some of these statistics that you know so well. You guys, I mean, she's not looking down at her screen. She's not reading a book. She knows these by heart. And I'm so glad you shared a lot of them because I know our listeners are kind of frantically taking notes while they're listening right now. Um, I did want to circle back to one thing that you kept mentioning a little bit, which is this biological protein goo. Um And I want to kind of maybe share some of your perspectives on plant-based meat. Um, I know you were kind of already alluded to like the economic portion of it, like big pork corporations and, you know, the money behind it. Mm -hmm. Um, But my, you know, when it gets brought up, my question or stance is always like one from a health standpoint, maybe we could dive into how people actually think that that could be, you know, a more healthy option than, you know, animal protein. Um, And also, I just don't understand how, again, going back to the bigger argument is like we're trying to fight climate change. How is growing meat in these labs and plants going to have less of a footprint than, you know, allowing cattle to graze out, you know, at pasture. So the argument that these guys are using is that it's less emissions and they've really honed in on the emissions argument. And that's, um, you know, winning for them because everyone has what I call carbon tunnel vision right now. They're only obsessed with carbon emissions. They're not looking at any other metric at all. So, uh, the reality is, all of the monocrops that are used to produce these um, protein pucks are coming out of extractive chemical agriculture that destroys habitats, that uh, does not improve soil health or water cycles or anything like that. And um, and it ends up being more expensive than organic grass-fed beef. Like I went on to walmart.com and per pound uh, beyond meat is twice as expensive as organic grass-fed beef. So it's, it's more expensive. It's less nutritious. They actually, Beyond Meat just got um, in trouble for lying about their uh, mm-hmm. nutritional benefits. Um, they're totally greenwashing. And, um, and also, I, I don't know how you would say like ethic watching, but they're, they're, all these companies are making it seem like no death happened at all mm-hmm. for their product to exist. And that's total BS. Um, they, they, the chemicals that they're using, the pesticides, the herbicides are absolutely, you know, destroying insects, 
removing the feed for birds. Um, the runoff is destroying waterways. And they're saying, well, it's better than meat. And, you know, not, no, it's not. <laughs> it's just not. Uh, but what they can win on is emissions if you're just looking at it in a reductionist way. And um, unfortunately, now what I'm seeing globally is all of these policies trying to reduce emissions. And so now we're seeing in Ireland um, uh, over a million head of livestock are like basically on the chopping block right now. That's mm -hmm. not going to uh, reduce demand for meat. That's only going to mean that all of these Irish farmers are going to be out of work and more business is going to go to Brazil or New Zealand or Australia or wherever else. Um, where in um, Wales, we have corporations buying up farmland, taking it out of farming uh, for carbon credits. So just putting it into non-usable nothingness. Um, uh, there's tree schemes happening where, where farmers are taking grazing land out of production and planting monocrop trees um, to offset the carbon emissions that these beautiful cattle are, are um, producing. And nobody is talking about the fact that it's a cycle and it's not just straight emissions coming from cattle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For everyone listening, um, Diana has this really great post on her sustainable dish page um, that really is a great graphic for what she's talking about when she says carbon tunnel vision. Um, you know, it's like, why are governments around the globe making short-sighted decisions to drastically cut emissions from the livestock sector? And she has this image of, you know, a person looking at all they can look at is carbon emissions. And then outside of their tunnel of vision, outside the carbon tunnel vision is, you know, things like water cycles, soil health, biodiversity, you know, workers' rights, regional economic, and the list goes on and on and on. And I think you're so right that we are just, I mean, Tara and I talk about this all the time about how I feel like we're obsessed with making, you know, the solution for climate, um, black and white and this pretty little bow. And everyone thinks that, you know, carbon emissions is it. And while, yes, it's like a big part of the conversation. Um, and I love to talk about it because you could talk about how cattle, you know, can, you know, recycle the carbon and they're actually a key role in, in playing, you know, a solution to it then if they want to have the carbon discussion. Um, but I think it's so important to, you know, we say again, going back to what I started with saying, we say this all the time about how this discussion of agriculture and cattle and climate and food and our future as a growing population is very gray area. It's very complex. Um, and no one, they just want to simplify it down and it just doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, for everyone who's kind of interested in, you know, Diana had mentioned, um, a little bit about what's going on in Ireland a little bit. Um, you know, I don't know if you mentioned New Zealand, but Tara and I did a, one of our candid conversations, which is episode 24, where we talk a little bit about these global, you know, anti-meat narratives and what's coming, you know, out of different areas, um, of, of the world. And it is alarming at what some of the you know, governments or whoever's putting down the stipulations are doing. Like Diana said, there's some very alarming things out there. Um, I think one thing I did want to touch on before we kind of wrap this up is, um, you know, as you mentioned at the beginning of this, your a big portion of your job right now is um, attending conferences, you know, nationwide and globally. And so, I mean, I know we kind of just talked about this a little bit, but can you let our listeners know like things you're seeing out there? Um, beyond what you already mentioned of like, you know, when it comes to, you know, conversation agriculture, do you feel like it's positive and heading in the right direction? Do you feel like we are just starting our fight? Like, what are you seeing when you're out there traveling and, you know, partaking in a lot of these bigger conversations that you're having? 
Yeah. Um, so I was just in New Zealand. I spent the most time in New Zealand of anywhere so far and New Zealand and Wales actually, which are just happen to be the two most beautiful places I've ever been in my life. Um, but, uh, the farmers are really upset. They're really bummed out. They're, um, they're not getting paid fairly for their work. They're being vilified. They're getting um, harassed online and they really need someone sticking up for them. So, uh, so I go to nutrition conferences and I'll explain the environmental and ethical case for, for why we need meat. But I spend a lot of time going to conferences where uh, there's farmers and just trying to help them understand how important they are, even though they're getting a lot of horrible feedback from uh, consumers and the government. Um, but, uh, you know, so other than just these crazy policies, it's really um, just trying to help farmers feel better. So there's, we, we need more farmers, we need more farmers to make money and um, see themselves as important players in the food system. Um, what you talked about made me in instantly put in my mind um, what's going on in the Netherlands right now, which is mm -hmm. obviously a huge thing for farmers, you know, making a case and standing up for themselves. All right. Well, Diana, um, if you maybe want to, I know we've shared throughout this podcast where people can find you, but if you want to plug everything from your podcast mm -hmm. to your book, to your social channels so that, um, you know, our listeners can find you on all the different platforms. Yeah. Um, so you definitely check out my film, Sacred Cow. And if you like it, I really highly recommend you check out the book because the book is way deeper than the film was able to do. And 120 minutes is not enough time to really tell the whole story. And the book, we have a little choose your own adventure section in the beginning. So, you know, does me cause cancer? Page 72, you know, and we kind of go through all of the anti-meat arguments and really have all the science in there too. So it's very well um, footnoted in the back of the book. Um, check out Global Food Justice. Um, there, there was a town in the Netherlands that recently banned meat advertising um, because of climate change. And um, I have, I, I can't talk about it yet, but I, I, think I'm going to be doing something really big to push back against that. And so people can learn more about that. They can subscribe to my Patreon and get, um, you know, early access to podcasts and all kinds of other cool things um, to if they join and support me um, there. So that would be awesome. And then, yeah, just, um, you know, if they want to learn more about the nutrition end of it, they could take my course, Sustainivore. And, uh, and, and learn not only the environmental and ethical case for livestock, but also, uh, you know, how to help themselves and really live their most optimal life. That's amazing. All right, Diana, thank you so much. And everyone, we will see you guys next week. Thank you. Thank you.